0: which is the Word of God. This is God's Word. Well, today I'd like to talk about the church's battle. Uh, I guess this is part two. Matt Wilkes, a former elder at Trinity Grace Church, did a wonderful job two weeks ago. And I want to pick up where he left off uh, in talking about the church's battle. Uh, and so if you're a Christ follower, I hope you get a clear picture of first what is the battle. Uh, why we're called to have this mindset of battle and how, how we battle, meaning what, what's the armor of God that he gives us to fight this battle. I want to begin then by just saying jubilation and defiance, jubilation and defiance. Now, I highlight these two words because these are two words that kept reoccurring in the headlines this past Friday, as news broke, June 24th, 2022, of Roe versus Wade being overturned in the United States. If you're unfamiliar with Roe versus Wade, about 50 years ago, or I think precisely 50 years ago, uh, there was a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and basically under uh, just an anonymous uh, pseudonym, uh, Jane Roe was fighting for her right to abort a child in her womb and long story short she won she won and so it became a federally constitutionally protected right for women uh, in the United States these past 50 years and since then there's been just legal means and license to uh, abort, and just matter-of-factly from a Christian standpoint to murder to murder countless millions of unborn living uh, souls and bodies. Now, of course, let me make a quick um, just side qualification. I've been in pastoral ministry long enough that there are real stories of real situations, uh, even as the law uh, allows for and speaks of and the people who do deep thinking of these things, of certain situations where it's not so black and white. I understand that. And that's a topic for another day but predominantly where the tone, the attitude, the motive behind uh, these abortions is the convenience and the comfort of trying to avoid the the burden of this child. This has been going on for 50 years. And so, as Christ followers, just matter-of-factly and and point-blank, we rejoice. There should be a rejoicing in our hearts At this overturn that in society in culture in a major player in the global world that there is this overturn from our Christian worldview we should also believe that this is the result of God mercifully answering five decades of persistent prayer of course the Christian as well we have to search our own heart and motives and what's our true agenda, but find fighting for whatever agenda and cause. And so certainly we can, uh, even as Christians, have the wrong motives and approach to fighting abortion and so forth. That's another topic for another day as well. But at the highest level, what we should be convinced of is that, and if you are a Bible-believing Christian, that God prizes, He treasures life. And there is sanctity to life. The old adage, when America sneezes, Canada catches a cold, meaning that's how influential and powerful the states is, uh, I hope that we do catch a cold, so to speak. In Canada, speaking closer to home, it was, abortion was decriminalized uh, because of a 1988 Canadian Supreme Court decision. But unlike the states, and we're one of the few democratic countries in the world, that has no bill that has ever been passed to enshrine access to abortion. And it's not considered a constitutionally protected charter right. So meaning, I mean, on one hand, that's a good thing for, for, uh, in our Christian worldview. But on the other hand, therefore we see in the headlines as well, our current prime minister being very vocal that now he has the agenda to enshrine access to abortion and make it a constitutional right to cement it in the laws of the land. Now my point in saying all that is to first say to the church in Canada there's much more praying to be done. There's much more work to be done. Of course, again, we need to as Scripture calls us in our witness to be gentle, to be full of grace, and the way we approach this fight, and to see the, 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 the project from the womb to the tomb, all of life, not just pigeonholing ourselves and making this, this one um, soapbox issue, so to speak. Now, to just convince us, again, biblically, for me, one of the most, and I was um, happy to return to this passage this week in light of... Um, it's my own time with God in light of Friday's news. And what convinces me the most that what's going on in the womb is truly life is Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose. This is after the angel uh, pronounced to her that she would become a child supernaturally and that this child would be Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And so Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, her brother in law, or, or sorry, her cousin in law, and greeted Elizabeth, uh, her cousin. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, so Elizabeth was pregnant and ahead in her pregnancy with John the Baptist, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So here's the Bible saying black and white. That baby, we don't know what trimester it was, probably around the second, if we had to guess. But it leapt. It knew. It was spirit-filled, even in the womb here. And as as Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord... So here is Elizabeth recognizing that even the baby that Mary has been... uh, has been conceived in her womb. And commentators, I've read two, and they believe that Mary, this was probably around just two weeks after the pronouncement that she went to visit Elizabeth. And so we could argue that even from the moment of conception, sperm, fertilizing, egg, that this is real life. This is body and soul in the eyes of God. And so the psalmist says, David says, that the Lord has knit me together fearfully and wonderfully in the, my mother's womb. And so here is Elizabeth recognizing this just egg and sperm that is, egg that has just been fertilized as her Lord. And that you should come to me for behold when the sound of your greeting came to my ears the baby in my womb leaped for joy. As a Christ follower if you are not convinced of what is going on in the womb is life. If you can't be convinced by this, then I don't know what can convince you. So if we take Scripture seriously as God's revealed word, then we can only be champions of life and supporting life from the womb to the tomb. Now, here's my real point in this introduction, and it comes down to this question, and I'm using what's been happening historically down south as an, a real-life example of the main message today which is spiritual battle how can people have such starkly opposing views on life in the womb and abortion how can people have such starkly opposing views Why is it that there was jubilation and defiance and throngs of people flooded uh, before the Supreme Court and there was just tension and and shouting going on between those two crowds and anger and vitriol? Why? And I want to offer you three quick metaphors or analogies of, of why people can have such starkly opposing views. First, it comes down to your lens in life. All of us have a lens. All of us have metaphorical glasses on, so to speak, that are colored a certain way, that are, you know, certain focus and so forth. And it makes you look out on the world a certain way. And so with this specific issue of life in the womb versus abortion, either A, abortionists, they don't believe that there is real life in the womb, that it's just tissue, or they do believe that there is life in the womb, and I think a lot of them still do because when you hear stories and one uh, woman just uh, about 20 years ago that I became friends with and shared very transparently and vulnerably of her abortion, just the deep brokenness and sadness and regret. And so she believed there is life in the womb, but she succumbed to just whatever forces, economic forces, and so forth that were going on in her life. And so meaning, they do believe that there's life in the womb, but the life and choice, and if we're honest, more often than not, out of the convenience or or the autonomy of the woman wanting to live for her own agenda is more important than the helpless life in that womb. Now, again, I'm not trying to make this sermon about abortion. We are going to get to the text and the bigger topic of spiritual battle, but I don't often naturally get an opportunity to address abortion from just the flow of Scripture. And so just just a few more thoughts on life in the womb versus abortion. One article I read, it was explaining that some main factors when it comes to This tension of life in the womb, protecting life in the womb, versus those who are fighting for abortion. Uh, A, that it's about, if we're gonna really fight this and solve this holistically, it's about fighting poverty, because often economic pressures tend to force women to get abortions. It's about healthcare law and policies, because, at least as the states, as a case study has shown, uh, if there are free abortions available through healthcare, then statistics show that abortions increase because if it's free and available, then people will take it. That's just human nature. And Of course, it comes down to wrestling with laws that speak to the sanctity of life in the womb, the realness of life in the womb versus not. But what the article failed to mention, but what Ephesians so beautifully and poignantly teaches us if we're going to engage in the spiritual battle of life holistically, Ephesians, Paul takes time, he takes pains to teach us how to do family, how to do marriage as Christ followers with God's grace, with his redemption. And so this article failed to, m- to mention the need to strengthen families, marriages, for boys and girls, young boys and girls who are taught. And mentored and loved to grow up into responsible, loving men and women who can keep long-term commitments. And so enter the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible. It is not only the lens, but when it comes to the whole debate between uh, life in the womb versus abortion, another metaphor that has helped me through, through my life is this whole notion of roots and fruits. The the roots, if your roots are, it's just tissue, then of course you're going to think it's inconsequential to, to abort. If you don't believe in God, and that we are created in the image of God, that there is deep sanctity to life, and that God himself is knitting every child in the womb, then of course it's easy for you to conclude, what's the big deal with abortions, and we should care about rights of people who are actually living? And so a third metaphor, story, a book. Each of us are either writing our own story, letting culture be our author. We are being our self-authors. Someone else is, is authoring our lives. And we're trying to frame life and pursue happiness, find happiness in the way we know it. But what the gospel says, enter gospel, Jesus, and the Bible, no, there's only one ultimately true and eternal story, and it's the story of all stories that makes sense of all the brokenness of this life and is the one true story that gives true hope for redemption beyond this life. And so enter uh, the gospel and Jesus. The world says, in reaction to even all the leaders of all the great nations, Twittering and tweeting and so forth that the States has gone backwards. But again, that's all relative to your lens, to the roots and fruits that you see to make sense of life or the story that you are writing. Because according to the Bible, actually at the fall, that's when we actually went backwards. And from a Christian worldview, no, now with this historic overturn, we are actually moving forward forward back to the vision of life that God has for us. And so it's all relative to your lens, to the story that you believe is the story, to the roots and fruits that you believe in. And so from a Christian worldview, Christian lens, Christian story, the world in trying to move forward, quote-unquote, is really only moving backwards. But as we experience more and more of God's grace, and as we fight this good fight, this spiritual battle, we're actually moving forward back to the vision for life that God meant for us. And now it's available to us again in Christ. Therefore, the Christ-following life is a spiritual battle until he calls us home. I want to say it clearly, and I hope if it's the first time, that it'll cement in your outlook on life, your lens, your roots and fruits, your story. Christian, your life is a battle. From now till Christ calls us home, your life is a battle. And that needs to be permanently there as an outlook. Of course, we need the Spirit's help because we need to put that in balance and tension with all the other calls. Like, how do we fight? We're, we're not like you know, Attila the Hun just barbarically slashing our swords everywhere and killing everyone in front of us and leaving a trail of blood. No, our, the kind of soldiers we're called to be are gentle, full of humility with the Spirit of Christ, and yet courageous and clearly engaging the world around us becoming sharper and sharper in our ability to engage that world. But nevertheless, we need to have this outlook that the Christ-following life is a spiritual battle. It's a battle for your mind, your affections, what, what you desire, what you emotionally become attached to, your will, meaning your decision-making uh, ability, meaning your soul. Those things put together are your soul. The battle is for your family. The battle is ultimately for culture. But again, it's, it's, again we, we need wisdom how we engage that cultural war. The battle is for this world ultimately. The battle is for history. But it's not only a battle for these things. The battlefield is also these things. Your mind, affections, will, your soul, your family, culture, world, history, And again, it's a sermon for another day, but I'm just repeating myself. Of course, how we engage that battle is of equal importance as well. With what tone, with what attitude. But what's in contention at the very heart of the battle is ultimately who is king of all kings. And so my prayer for all of us as we meditate on today's passage Uh, I I hope and pray that the Lord would stir something in your heart in line with this prayer. Lord, help me to stand firm. To stand firm with your whole armor. Stand firm with your whole armor. So I want to ask first, how? How do I use God's armor? How? Um, It's going to just... Stick with me here because it's not going to be straightforward, concrete answers. But the first how is to remember that it's commanded. As we now get into the text, picking up, let's back up one verse before. Therefore, take up. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. First, therefore, this is a conclusion and meaning, Paul's argument, he started in verse 10 about now speaking of the spiritual battle and the importance for us to engage in this battle. And all the more, he bolsters his argument. Therefore, this is a strong conclusion. This is a command. Every Christ follower is enlisted. Once you placed faith in Jesus and you united yourself to Christ, if it's, maybe it's news to you today, but you became a soldier as well a spiritual soldier. It's a command. And we see that command all the more in the fact that Paul says take up. Just Even the grammar of of this is a command, an imperative. The conclusion is you must see yourself as a spiritual soldier. Put it differently, we have a responsibility in this. We have to do our part To obey this command to take up. We're Canadians here. Um, By definition, we love hockey. I don't necessarily love hockey, but hey, if you want to associate hockey with me as a Canadian, that's okay. Um, So we love hockey in Canada. Can you imagine a player, whether it's Pee Wee, you know, Rep, AAA, NHL, OHL, whatever level, but competitive hockey, can you imagine a player going out with no equipment. Just, let's say, their skates and their hockey stick. <laughs> okay? All the more in the NHL, right? Where there's real body checking going on. Can you imagine? For sure. There's, hopefully you're thinking, yeah, that would be silly. That would be unsafe. That would be ridiculous. That's the kind of silliness, in a sense, that we're to understand if we don't heed this imperative, this command to take up our armor. As a Christ follower, you're to be putting on this equipment each and every day. Remember, we're asking, how? How do I use the armor of God? First, remember, it's a command. And so we have our responsibility. We've got to put it on. And Paul all the more says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Let's just play on the uh, hockey analogy. Imagine you only go out with skates, helmet, and shoulder pads. And you're missing all the other parts of your armor, your hockey armor, your equipment. You get the point. And all the more here, we're not just to take up certain parts of the armor. For example, we'll get into it later, but there's the belt of truth. Some of us, we love truth. We're all about doctrine, and and we'd have this giant, you know, belt, and that's it. (laughs) But we lack all the other parts of the armor. For example, the breastplate of righteousness to, to keep our hearts tender and protected from guilt and shame and realizing that others need to be protected from guilt and shame. Their hearts being freed in, in the righteousness of Christ. So we need the whole armor. And so we, this is a lifelong journey and God's grace is abundant more than abundant for us to be maturing into this so I don't mean to discourage anyone or to make you feel um, you know beat up that you don't have the whole armor on each and every day yet but this is what we need to mature toward to have this whole armor of God on okay now then I wanna ask why why do I need God's armor now the world they They get it because they're living still under that first covenant of works and built into the covenant of works is the desire to perform, the desire to actualize and become everything and to win the prize, the ultimate prize being eternal life. And we're still grasping for that as we don't want to die early. We want to extend our lives. We want to be healthy, beautiful, young, as long as we can be. We want to be secure. And so the world gets it. And so a little quote from pop culture. We have some Rocky fans here. This Rocky Balboa. Every champion was once a contender that refused to give up. And So the world can appreciate the, the spirit of hard work and a good fight and fighting the good fight. And my point is how much more should Christ followers who already have our victory in Christ, how much more should we be inspired to fight this good fight? And so related then, let's go back to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God. We're asking the question, why? Why do we put on the armor of God? Now this finally... Uh, John Stott, he unpacks, and he was helpful, uh, very helpful for me, He's saying that certain manuscripts, the word that's actually used for finally should be translated not just finally as a last word in his letter, as a last point, introducing the conclusion, but henceforward. So we could paraphrase this, henceforward. Forward from this point on as you became a Christ follower until he calls you home. That's why today's prayer is Lord help me to stand firm in your whole armor until you call me home. Until you call me home. So henceforward, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Henceforward. Meaning the whole of the interim period between the Lord's two advents, from His first coming to His second, is characterized by battle, by conflict. And so you should not be surprised if life becomes very challenging. First, at the personal level, as you're trying to mature and, and, and you're just waging war against your own desires and, and trying to grow into the character of Christ to relationships around you to more broadly the culture and the tension we feel of trying to follow Christ and his morals his ethics because of his grace in a world that rejects God and all his ways we should not be surprised so I love how John Stott puts it and I hope this quote actually becomes a comfort to you because it became a comfort to me because it made me feel normal in a good way. The peace that we so much want, that peace that surpasses all understanding in Christ, the peace which God has made through Christ's cross, is to be experienced only in the midst of a relentless struggle against evil. And for this, the strength of the Lord and the armor of God are indispensable part of growing up, now that I'm on the other side of being a parent and raising my kids, you know, all the more they're going through that phase where they become sucky, right? I'm just going to say it sort of bluntly, you know, and, 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 and the, the knee-jerk reaction is, I need to take you to some other parts in the world. Next opportunity to take you on a mission trip, I got to take you there so you can see how privileged you are, how much blessing you have. You're, you're complaining about this discomfort which is really being like a queen, king or queen compared to so many other children in the world. And so what I'm, my point is I, I'm trying to give them a dose of healthy reality. And so we would, be, we would do well as Christians. I think John Stott is, is help, trying to help us to realize what's normal. And especially the Christian life because you understand that there is this cosmic battle until Christ returns after the millennium. And and He once and for all brings His final established kingdom. Until then, it is a battle. And so the peace which God has made through Christ's cross, we're not to be just like Buddhists who are... Um, escaping, or, or monks of Christian monks in the past just escaping and isolating. But this peace, it, it's to be worked out in the midst of this relentless struggle, this spiritual battle. Okay? And that's why all the more the armor of God, I agree with John Stott, is indispensable. Now, John Stott, that's not just John Stott's thought. He's reflecting on Paul's words, inspired by the Spirit. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? Here's the why. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And this is still the evil day, according to this biblical category. And having done all, looking to the end, the perseverance of the saints to stand firm. Now, withstand, to stand firm... Uh, another commentator explains well that it's about stability. Actually, William MacDonald he, he explains stand f- therefore this is Paul's concern for the Christ follower's stability. And so William MacDonald reflects wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. so to put it another way just maybe in terms that we hear a lot today we talk about emotional health mental health you can't have Christian maturity full Christian maturity without emotional maturity if your emotions are going up and down up and down up and down or if you find yourself a very reactive person then there's room to grow There's room to mature, and and that instability can become an inroad for the devil to take advantage of and to try to knock you off the rails. You can't have Christian maturity without also intellectual maturity. That's why Paul's going to identify one of the pieces of armor as the belt of truth. We'll get into that in a moment. But you also need intellectual maturity. You need a solid grasp of a Christian system of thinking. And so don't stop reading and going to studies and asking questions. You need to have a clear system. And that's why in, the church, in church history we have something called systematic theology. Of course, the best systematic theology is most directly based on God's Word and a good systematic theologian will Um, you'll you'll recognize, hopefully you'll see, okay, they're really trying to string Scripture together, not just their own ideas and philosophies. But the point is, you can't have Christian maturity without also intellectual maturity. And you can't have Christian maturity without decision-making maturity of the will. And when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, and you're at a fork in the road, that your will is actually keeping in step with the Spirit. That your emotions are kept in check. Your thoughts are, are the, the, the rails that are keeping you straight. And then to be able to actually execute and move toward what God is calling you to. And so this is what Paul means by withstand, stand firm. That kind of Christian stability. I love what William Gurnall says, a Puritan pastor from 1655, "In heaven, we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory." So again, just to reinforce the reality, it's battle now till Christ calls us home. But the hope, the hope, is that that battle will end one day. There will be true Sabbath, true, just glassy sea, no more chaos peace perfect peace in heaven in the new creation no more armor but robes of glory but here now on earth they are to be worn night and day we must walk work and sleep in them or else we are not true soldiers of christ the whole armor and so william granola i'm sure thinking of even jesus and his words to especially Uh, the three in the garden. Could you not stay awake for an hour with me and pray? The saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. So be alert. Stay awake. Put on the whole armor. Make that a prayer. Lord, help me to mature and continue to be stable, to grow in stability emotionally, intellectually, in my decision making with the whole armor of God. So finally let's unpack what what is God's armor now I want to give thanks to Matt Wilkes in his prep for his sermon he came across this uh, humorous but insightful quote and he said Albert you should use this when you unpack the armor and uh, from an article by J.D. Peabody first what God's armor is not so J.D. Peabody in his article reflecting I have multiple options I go to regularly when I'm in self-preservation mode. I call it the armor of me which includes the belt of denial, the breastplate of humor, feet ready with a plan of escape, the shield of perfectionism, the helmet of avoidance, and the sword of blame. Oh, How many of us are guilty? Of all these armor of me. My armor has many additional elements God doesn't offer, such as the shoulder pads of delusion, the face mask of people pleasing, and the shin guards of distraction. First, are are you guilty of the armor of me? If you are, let's repent. Let's let's change our minds and let's admit, God, yeah, I don't I admit it. This is wrong. This is not what is going to help me fight the good fight that you call me to. I don't want to fight like the world. I don't want to fight the same fight as the world. So what is the armor of God? So first, stand there for having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, Paul, as first, I think, he's first and foremost um, quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah I don't have the reference on me, but in Isaiah, it speaks of uh, God's people taking on that belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. So those two for certain, um, Paul is also thinking of the Old Testament, uh, but also thinking, most likely seeing that Roman soldier, that centurion, standing guard uh, as he's in prison writing this letter. And the belt of truth was the piece that held everything else together, And so metaphorically, this makes sense. You need that clear, solid, robust system of Christian gospel truth. A systematic theology, if you will, that brings the whole Bible together. I mean, the the simplest, for starters, Jesus. That's the truest systematic theology. And how can I say that? Because Jesus himself, those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he speaks to them. He explains from the Law, to the Prophets, to the Psalms, and tying it all together. The system is that it all points to Him. So that's a good place to start. A reliable place to start. In fact, the only place to start. But it holds it all together. Now, let me try to convince you of the practical importance of this. Uh, As I was reading another article, just commenting on uh, the events that happened on Friday down south, Um, What came to my intention that more and more in the front yards of America, you'll see these signs just hammered into the the front yard. And it's the secular creed of America. And it says, the words are this, In this house, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights, Uh, and some also include that gay rights are human rights. We are all immigrants. Diversity makes us stronger. Now, on initial listening, just surface glance, some of that actually sounds really Christian and really beautiful and true. So there are two problems with this secular creed. First, it sounds Christian because certainly Christ died on the cross, as we sang, for an inheritance of all nations. And there's diversity. There's meant to be a true diversity in the church. Certainly love is important, but here it says love is love, meaning you define love as you define love, not that God himself in Christ, according to his holiness and righteousness, is love. We are all immigrants. That's true. Peter says a Christian you need to understand you're an alien you're a sojourner just passing through this earth and so Christians all the more the people who should first have an understanding of the, the plight of refugees and just passing through and and trying to help those who have less but you see the the problem is that it, it just sounds Christian and ultimately it's not anchored, it's not tied together with the belt of God's ultimate, absolute truth in Christ. And so a second problem with that secular creed is that secularists forget that the modern values and that they esteem are actually, in the flow of history, they're all fruits of the roots of Western civilization being built on Christianity. And even non-Christian historians will attest to as much. And so they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So this is why the belt of truth is so important and very practically important for our Christian life and having this mindset of spiritual battle today in the here and now. And now, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, of course, that piece of armor, uh, either a really thick, um, dried-out piece of hide or an actual uh, blacksmith, uh, hammered-out piece of uh, metal guarding the internal organs, but especially the heart. And this metaphorically is beautiful for the Christian because as we think of the heart now spiritually, not the physical heart, but your soul, how does the soul get attacked the most by the accuser and his flaming darts? Guilt and shame, is it not? I mean, even to this day for myself, as I walk with Christ, guilt and shame creep in. And if I'm not alert, if I don't put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness covering me to protect me from the accuser, to condemn me and make me feel small and unworthy, then I'm lost. If I don't have that breastplate of Christ's righteousness imputed on me to guard my heart and so I can bask in God's grace once again, be forgiven and cleansed and matured and lifted up and keep moving forward. And so, naturally, verse 15, shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so you could deduce here, too, that really metaphorically, the shoes are the gospel. And so it's the gospel, this good news of grace, that's meant to keep us moving, agile, missional, engaging. It's the gospel that should animate you, motivate you, and help you to run this race for the long haul to the very end. So that your feet, your life, your your, your motivation, your mind, your your body, your, your entire being can run this long race. It's the gospel that will make it possible. Because if it's not Jesus's gospel of grace and instead somehow you put on the feet of the shoes of performance and earning God's love as an example, as a false alternative to the fitted with the gospel of peace, then you are going to either become a really angry person. You might finish the race, but you will end that race bitter and anger and judgmental and feeling superior, or you will burn out before the end. And so Paul continues then, in all circumstances, every moment, waking moment, before you go to bed, to have this this awareness that you need the shield of faith. Now, why is faith the shield? The shield is that one piece next to the sword that's kind of not on you. It's, it's sort of external. And, and if we're trying to understand the metaphor, it plays out in a few ways. First, it's like the other pieces of armor on you need that extra protection. It, it's a It's an added layer of protection to even the breastplate of righteousness the belt of truth the helmet of salvation why because faith in Jesus is what will make truth actually true because there are brilliant PhD professors who reject God are atheists but teaching in seminaries and teaching the Bible they have truth but they have no faith in Jesus it's faith in Jesus that shield of faith that gives even more life and protective nature to the other pieces of armor. And so always faith, it's faith that will faith in Christ that will make that sense of righteousness, God's righteousness on over your heart viable and truly extinguishing the flaming darts of guilt and shame that the enemy throws. Or shoots at you, and so we need in all circumstances the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is guards the mind, guards your thoughts, and so really speaking metaphorically to a worldview, that lens, that story through which you look out onto the world, and so our worldview is to predominantly be framed as a journey toward salvation. As Scripture says, working out our salvation and that we will receive that final fruit of our salvation on that final day. Yes, you were saved in the past and that was done. And your status is permanently changed. But now we work it out until Christ calls us home. And then we'll receive the fullness of what was accomplished in the past. And so we're to guard that outlook, that the predominant, one of the important predominant lenses and outlooks on life for the Christ followers that we're working out our salvation. Keep that on the forefront of our minds, and that will naturally protect even an eternal perspective, to, to keep that perspective that this life isn't everything, as you have that helmet of salvation. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I love um, what Paul writes in another letter, 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And he further defines strongholds in verse 5. We destroy. What are strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ and so the real battle is for people's worldviews for people's stories the story through which they choose to see their life it really comes down to stories come come, comes down to, to arguments and reasons and ideas being strung together And so, the sword of the Spirit is is what we need. The story of God. The sword of of the Spirit is is the word of God. This means the knowledge of God, the story of God. And so, to come back to where we started, June 24th, 2022, as an example, just how this spiritual battle partly plays out. Partly plays out in real life, real time. Now, I- interestingly, I, I, I don't know if this was planned or not, but in the church calendar, do you know what June 24th is? In church history, the church fathers um, sought to it that June 24th is actually John the Baptist Day. <laughs> And just interesting. It's just an interesting coincidence that John the Baptist who in the womb recognized Jesus the Messiah in the womb. That on that same day that there's this overturn and we can't minimize the significance of this globally in history. And hopefully there will be good ripple effects. Just continue to move people to considering the story of God and life through God's eyes. But it's interesting that those two things line up on that day. Who is John the Baptist? He was also someone who fought that good fight. He was the one that was prophesied by Malachi to turn hearts of fathers back to children, and children back to fathers, meaning Families would be strengthened. Why and how? Because of the gospel. Because of grace making its way and invading and and redeeming families. So all this to say, hopefully to encourage you, to inspire you, don't give up in living out your calling to fight this good fight as a Christ follower. Stand firm with the whole armor until he calls you home. So, Martin Luther he writes in his hymn A mighty fortress is our God, that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them does the word abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. And so, if your heart agrees with this prayer with me, would you just say this prayer with me? Let's read this prayer together. Lord, help me to stand firm with your whole armor.